MSW Media. The Manhattan DA is getting ready to indict the Trump Organization and its CFO, Alan Weisselberg. What does this mean, and will Trump be next? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Betty Vasquez, but she can't be with us today, so I'd like to just thank our patrons before bringing in our special guest. With special thanks to Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Kimberly Summers, Joe Targonsky, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So guys, I will tell you, I rushed to get this podcast out because I really think it's important to put some context on the recent news uh, regarding the Manhattan DA's announcement of uh, not an announcement, but I say the reports. It's clearly that they've they've told the Trump Organization, they've told its lawyers that they are going to be indicting the Trump Organization. They're looking uh, not only that, but they're also looking uh, to potentially indict Alan Weisselberg, the CFO, for a much more limited set of charges than we otherwise thought that they were going to. I, you know, I have talked a number of times in the podcast to Dan Alonzo. I thought, let's get him on and immediately get this into context because he understands what's going on so much better than anybody else I've been hearing talk about this because he wasn't just a federal prosecutor, which he did for a while, but he also was the chief assistant district attorney in the Manhattan DA's office. He was literally the number two guy to Cy Vance uh, for for quite some period of time. And Cy Vance, of course, is the head Manhattan DA who is bringing this and, you know, bringing these charges and leading this investigation. So, you know, Dan is really able to give us some perspective that I think is important. And I want to put this all into perspective because we've all been down this road before thinking something's going to happen. And then it turns out to not be what we thought. So one thing we do know now is it looks like indictment indictments coming. It's not quite what we expect, but what it means, I think, is really important. I have some inkling, uh, but I really want to bring in Dan here. So let's bring in Dan Alonzo, Daniel Alonzo, so that he can uh, give us some wisdom and get us a sense of exactly what to make of this news. Welcome back to the podcast, Dan. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Renato. We've had a number of conversations about... Uh, this uh, investigation. And I have to say, I was a little surprised this week to see how close things are to a finish line. I mean, it seems to me that if the Manhattan DA's office is already speaking to lawyers for the Trump organization and essentially asking them to come in and pitch, 
In other words, to, to get you know come in and convince them not to charge. We could be expecting charges very soon. Uh, is that is this something that's uh, happening more quickly than you anticipated? Yes and no. It seems from the re- reporting that we've heard that this is happening more quickly in the sense that we were expecting months and months. But the question is, what is this? And it seems like the this that's happening is a set of charges relating to taxable fringe benefits for which no taxes were withheld or paid. Now, that's an important crime. Obviously, you know, I'm a taxpayer in New York and I don't want other people to, uh, you know, I don't want companies to have fringe benefits for their employees that are financed by taxpayers like me. So it's important to bring these kind of things. But in the scheme of the entire investigation that we've been talking about, it's a small fraction of what has been thrown out there as being investigated. You know, the loans to the, uh, with the banks and the insurance underwriting and the taxes for the Trump organization as a whole. Uh, those are large accounting fraud, you know, type issues that are very serious if they turn out to be crimes. This is serious, a felony, but, you know, it's not in the scheme of thing, cases that are brought in Manhattan courts on a daily basis. It's, I wouldn't call it the case of the century. You know, it's interesting because it really seems to me that uh, the Manhattan DA's office conducted a pretty comprehensive investigation here. And, you know, there are, there are different ways to go with that. I mean, I have to say when I was a prosecutor, I liked having lean indictments. I liked charging what I was, felt was very solid. I always knew, at least in federal court, that I could bring other factors, other issues, put other evidence before the judge at sentencing, but getting the conviction on what mattered was or what I had that was solid was more important. Uh, other prosecutors had a different approach. So it would be like the kitchen sink approach where let's throw everything at the other side and in, they'll have trouble sp- explaining it all away. You know, is this part, you know, is part of the, uh, is part of what's going on here that they've made a decision that this is their most readily, readily provable charge and that, you know, they're better off just, you know, moving forward on the charge that they have uh, because the other, you know, the other charges are there's more litigation risk, so to speak. Maybe, but I do caution that just because they're bringing these charges now doesn't mean they're not going to bring those other charges later. Remember, they impaneled the grand jury for six months and it's only been about a month since they started. So it, it seems to me likely that they're, this investigation is not over and they're continuing. Does that mean they're going to charge these big charges? Does that mean they're going to be able to establish a state racketeering charge, as we've discussed. Uh, I, I, I just don't know. We just don't know. There's not there's not enough in the public record, other than what Michael Cohen says, for us to know whether those larger charges are potentially provable. You know, it's an interesting question. So when you are, um, as a prosecutor, when you are considering whether to bring charges earlier, a lot of time, you know, versus let's say, you know, so just so the the listeners understand the context, you can bring charges on, at time one as a prosecutor and then add more charges later. You've probably heard this term superseding indictment. You can have a superseding indictment later and add charges or, you know, even if it's if it if it's not appropriate to have them under the same indictment, you can have a separate indictment later and you can have different indictments of different people. But, you know, and, and the, but the reason you might want to have, for example, an indictment out earlier is so that 
you can put a stop to illegal activity so that you can vindicate um, uh, you know, the, the law in some respect rather than waiting for a long, drawn-out investigation. But I wonder here, in the context of a white-collar case where you're looking at the Trump organization and you've got you know, this is, yeah, you have a grand jury for six months, but the, no one expects that this case to drag on for years. Can you can you think, just obviously based on what we know publicly, why you would bring charges now and if you and then just wait on other potential charges, um, you know, as opposed to just kind of doing everything at once at the end of the case? Well, with the usual caution that we're educated, you know, engaging in ed- educated speculation, my best guess is that they're calling Weisselberg's, Weisselberg's bluff. In other words, they likely went to him and said, here's what we have. We're definitely going to file charges against you. There may be charges down the road. This is the time to cooperate if you're going to. Uh, and he said, I'm not going to. That's been well reported. So rather than saying, okay, well, we'll see you five months from now, they just decided to get him you know, into the system now. Uh, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the best strategy. I mean, I hate to second guess prosecutors when I don't know all the facts, so I won't do it. But I will say that there are some downsides to bring the case to court this week or, or soon. Most significantly, it starts the speedy trial clock ticking and it uh, and it triggers very onerous state discovery obligations that are way broader than those that are required in, in federal court that you and I are used to. And, you know, presumably they've thought about this and they, they well understand that they'll have to do this, but it's going to put some obligations on the DA that could be a distraction as they continue to investigate the rest of the case. Yeah, that's that's an extremely important point, Dan. So I, I will say that, you know, one thing that listeners should understand is while the law enforcement is investigating your potential wrongdoing. They generally, okay, there are exceptions to this, but they generally don't have discovery obligations towards you in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, now that I'm on the other side of it, I may represent clients who are under investigation and they, they'd like to know a lot about what the government's doing, but they have absolutely no leg to stand on in terms of getting that information unless the government voluntarily decides to provide it. Uh, but once you have been charged, as you point out, obviously you have all sorts of rights uh, and the government is going to have uh, various deadlines to meet. And you, you, you said that they are even more onerous in state court rather than federal. Can you explain to us the difference between the two? You're a rare person who can talk with authority on this as a former state and federal prosecutor. You know, I have I, I will and I'm happy to do that. But I was going to say I haven't done a 50 state survey of all the discovery obligations, but <laughs> I'm going to take a guess that that New York is probably broader than almost any state. For one thing, the the obligation is triggered even before, even without an indictment. It's triggered by the the arrest or the presentation in court of the person. So as you know, most cases start without an indictment. This one that doesn't apply to because it'll start with an indictment. But that's an odd thing to do to to require discovery even without an indictment. But in this case. It'll require, I, I can't remember, I think it's 45 days from arraignment. They'll have to produce pretty much everything or else they will have to get a protective order or some other order with showing good cause uh, as to why they can't produce everything. When I say everything, I mean not just the evidence that they intend 
to introduce at trial, like in federal court, you're required to do that, not just the exculpatory information, you're required to do that in all courts, but you're, but they'll have to put in all of the police reports that relate to the investigation um, and notes of interviews with witnesses, even if they don't intend to call those witnesses at trial. It's a very, very broad rule. And the grand jury minutes uh, will have to, would ordinarily have to be turned over. I expect in this case, they'll get a protective order for that because it's an ongoing grand jury investigation, but they might not. I mean, they might have to turn over the grand jury minutes that led to Weisselberg's indictment uh, to the defense within, again, I can't, it, it's a new rule, so I can't remember if it's 30 or 45 days, but it's pretty, it's pretty soon after arraignment. So, you know, I have to say one thing that didn't surprise me here was hearing that the organization itself could be indicted because I it spoke to you in the past on this podcast and we discussed that possibility and you seem to think that that was a very real possibility. I I'm curious what you know, what you think what does that mean for the Trump organization? We heard a lot of legal analysts talking about that recently. I'm I'm curious if your view on that. I don't think any any of us knows enough to know what that means for the organization. I certainly don't know even the corporate structure of the hundreds of entities that they have. I know there's a holding company. Presumably, there's an operating company that's the main one. Uh, I don't know if it's the same as the holding company. Uh, and you know, we don't know which ones hold the loans, which ones have the covenants. You know, the the promises that you make to lenders when you take out loans. Uh, we don't know which ones committed the, the supposed crimes, like who was the employer for Weisselberg, which company submitted the uh, the W-2s or, or, or uh, sent, sent the tax information to the tax authorities. So, you know, we don't know more than we do know. That said, uh, the the likelihood is that a, a corporate entity or entities will be indicted for the simple reason that it seems that the that these acts, including this tax-free fringe benefit piece was committed at least in part for the benefit of the company because it benefited the company to have happy employees, especially if they have evidence that the employees were doing, uh, you know, things that they shouldn't have been doing. Uh, And it was done within the scope of the employment of the people who did it. So it will be something where they can charge the company under the law. And then they have to look at the various factors that the the DA's policy um, requires them to look at. I issued that policy on behalf of the DA 11 years ago. Um, and I can tell you that it's very similar to the federal policy that you're very familiar with. And it ultimately would point, would seem to point in a case like this to charging the Trump organization because they likely haven't fulfilled a lot of the factors like cooperating or self-reporting. Uh, but it's a long way to get to what I think you were asking, which is uh, one major factor in the policy is what are the collateral consequences for the organization? So again, there was speculation, you know, will this be a, a death blow to the Trump organization? Will the banks call their loans? And, you know, first of all, we don't, without seeing those, those loan agreements, we don't know what the covenants were, but I don't know of any that I've ever heard of, or, or and if they exist, they, I'm sure they're rare, where if you get indicted, therefore they're going to call your, your loan. I think it's a risk-based approach that the banks are going to take with respect to these loans, and they're going to they're going to see what they're going to do. But as a general matter, why would they call the loans immediately uh, if they know that the Trump organization doesn't have the liquid assets to pay them off and are going to file for bankruptcy protection? I mean, banks like money, and if a loan is performing, which presumably these are, it seems to me that maybe they they 
watch them a little more carefully, put some strictures around it. But I don't know that they, they'll be they'll be calling these loans, particularly not for this. Right. It's one thing if the crime were a, a, a bank loan fraud, if the if the entity were being indicted for that, but they're being indicted for tax tax free fringe benefits, which is, as I said, in the scheme of things, just one corner of what the organization does. So I don't see that this is a death knell to the Trump organization. But again, we need to know a lot more to, to analyze that. Yeah. So just to add some context to what you said, I think it's very, very helpful. Just so listeners understand that prosecutors consider things like, you know, Dan, you mentioned collateral consequences. They'll consider whether, for example, there's shareholders who are going to be impacted, employees who are going to be impacted. You know, if if you you know, generally speaking, prosecutors want to hold individuals responsible because that's the most effective way to deter crime is to you know have people who can be held accountable personally versus an entity where the people who may end up paying the price are you know random employees who had nothing to do with the misconduct or shareholders or whatever now uh, you know it's an interesting point you make about we don't know the corporate structure one just to give some context for our listeners you know it could be sometimes you can have a company we may think of a particular company you know you can think of whatever company comes to mind to you whether it's apple or amazon they often have all sorts of entities that they use for different purposes. They may have an entity that just holds their intellectual property. They may have an entity that, you know, uh, for different divisions or different aspects of their business. And I think the point that Dan's making is if the the entity involved, you know, for example, only relates to a certain portion of the Trump organization business, you know, some of you are asking questions like, does this affect, you know, the liquor licenses of the corporation? You know, what is the ability of the Trump organization to, you know, have uh, serve have restaurants and hotels and things like that? It may be that these are all separate entities, such that what Weisselberg was doing with this particular entity, you know, may have very little impact uh, on those other entities. Is that essentially the point you were making, Dan? It's exactly right. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, I think that, you know, there has been a lot of hyperbole around what could this could mean for the Trump organization. And I think it's well-meaning. I don't think that people are trying to be misleading. In other words, I will say myself, I represent uh, companies and entities, and it certainly is the case that if an organization is under investigation, much less un, be, you know, under uh, indictment, it can have an impact on how lenders view you, can have an impact. Employees often uh, head for the door. They don't want to have any part of that. Uh, you know, it certainly can have an impact on your, you know, people who want it, whether they want to do business with you and things like that. So it definitely can have an impact on a business. You know, in this case, um, as you point out, it's going to be interesting to see um, what the impact would be. And I think it's going to, I think the devil may be in the details here in terms of, as you point out, not just the corporate structure of the Trump organization, but exactly what's laid out in the charges and how, to me, whether or not it, it really goes to honesty. Uh, and, uh, you know, on its face, what we've heard publicly, it, it maybe not, maybe not so much. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that, Listen, the devil's in the details in any legal case. Uh, I hope that the DA will file more than just the typical bare bones indictments they tend to file in state court in Manhattan. It's not like federal court where most good federal prosecutors will file 
a the kind of indictment that will tell a story that will sort of lay it all out. I used to do that myself and my colleagues in the Eastern and Southern districts of New York did that a lot. But, you know, in, in Manhattan, there's some conflicting case law that suggests that if you put something in an indictment, you have to prove that every fact that you put in. And so prosecutors are a little reticent to put too much into an indictment. Uh, so uh, I hope that they'll release some kind of statement of facts or something like that to the court. I expect they will. That's a practice that they have that they have uh, followed for a number of years. So I think a lot will be for you know people like you and me to take a look at that stuff as soon as possible and try to decipher it for folks who are very interested in, in this. And I know there's a lot, of, a lot of people that are. I think that they should have expectation that something's going to happen, but they also shouldn't expect this to be uh, some some death blow to any particular uh, organization or, or even or certainly individual. So one thing that um, Kathy is asking one of our listeners is, can you explain how this strategy is being used to get Weisselberg to flip? And I think that may be something that is confusing a lot of folks is, well, what is how is this? How how is the the potential of this indictment really going to influence Weisselberg at all? I would say zero. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I say zero, the reason I listen, it's possible that as handcuffs come on, uh, he will you know rethink every decision he's ever made. But I doubt it strongly. Every indication is that he is still in touch with Donald Trump. Uh, you don't have to be an expert on Donald Trump to know what that means. And he's he understands exactly what the possible outcome is here because he's been through it a million times with his lawyer. And he may well even have been in to hear what the D.A. had to say. I don't know that, but that sometimes happens. So the charges are likely to be exactly what he's expecting. If they are the taxable fringe benefits, they are not the kind of charges that in New York state courts typically will result in jail time or prison time, certainly. Uh, even without cooperation. Um, so, I mean, perhaps after a trial, it could be that somebody would get a little bit of jail time for these charges. But generally speaking, that doesn't happen in uh, in state court for this amount of money. And again, I'm speculating on the amount of money, but I'm guessing it's something like $100,000 or more in tax loss, which is not nothing. But, you know, you, you know well from federal tax cases, Renato, that, you know, that's not an enormous amount of tax loss. And, and just for your listeners, tax loss is not the amount of income they didn't declare, that it's the amount of, of tax money that should have gone to the tax authorities, but didn't, or the amount of the refund that was paid unlawfully. The, the actual amount of income would be a lot more. So, you know, people have been calculating, I've been calculating, kind of as a rule of thumb, somewhere north of a million dollars, probably if we're talking about cars and apartments and perhaps tuition, um, yeah, somewhere somewhere north of a million dollars over ten years is, is right for Manhattan. And if we look at the highest New York tax rate, it's in the nine ten percent range. So I think it's about what I what I just said, and and that, that that's just not a case that invariably leads to jail time. Sometimes maybe, but not usually. Yeah, it's interesting. I will say it's smaller than the tax cases that I handled when I was a federal prosecutor, based solely on tax loss. If we're looking at it from that perspective, obviously the federal rate is higher, but you know, tax rate is higher. But I do think, you know, it's an interesting, you know, point you make about in skepticism regarding whether he's going to flip. You know, uh, I think it is definitely the case, and I, I'm sure some just to present a different viewpoint, some will argue that for somebody like Weisselberg, 
even the thought of spending one night in prison is one night too many, and they're going to react. Uh, you know, he'll he's going to react very strongly to that. And I do think this will certainly disrupt his life. I'm sure Mr. Weisselberg doesn't like being the subject of all this conversation and speculation. I'm sure he won't enjoy the, you know, being accused of, of being a felon. I'm sure he's not going to enjoy um, going through this court process. No one would. That said, um, I think, you know, based on my experience, I, I tend to agree with you. If if his lawyer is telling him that you're not going to, you know, the chances of you serving more than a year in prison for this is are very, very low, uh, I, I think almost any defendant's going to fight that to the bitter end unless they can't afford uh, to have a, a legal representation, which I don't think will be the case for Mr. Weisselberg. And then you add to that, you know, we just had an election in Manhattan, and we're not 100% sure who the next DA will be, but we're pretty sure who it's going to be. But whichever of the two it is, you know, every single candidate jumped over each other to say they're going to eliminate the so-called trial tax, which means that they're not going to make it you know, they're not going to have defendants get a tougher sentence after trial than they would if they plead guilty. Now, <laughs> that may be that may be a great strategy for the mass of cases that have you know led to perhaps more people incarcerated than than uh, than we want as a society. But it's not a particularly good strategy for persuading people to cooperate. So if, if I'm Weisselberg, maybe I think my trial is not going to happen until next year. And I can say to the DA, well, listen, whatever you recommended to the judge pre-trial is all you're going to recommend post-trial or else you're imposing a trial tax. You can tell I'm being a, a tiny bit facetious or, 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 or sarcastic. You can tell that uh, I, I don't think it's, it's the greatest policy, not because you know, I disagree that people should have very disproportionate differences pre and post trial, but because I think that prosecutors need to be able to offer an incentive uh, for people to plead guilty and for people to cooperate. And for that to happen, you have to have kind of a baseline of what might happen if you are convicted at trial. Um, in any event, it doesn't bind the judge. So, you know, the judge could still send Weisselberg to jail, but it, it adds a wrinkle that didn't exist when I was last a prosecutor. Yeah, it's interesting. I was going to say that I imagine this doesn't I'm not a, I was a federal prosecutor, not a Manhattan uh, district uh, assistant district attorney. So I don't know. I don't have the experience you do, but I would figure it wouldn't bind the judge. And, and what I would tell my client is, uh, regardless of whether or not uh, Alvin Bragg or ever, you know, whoever the new D.A. is going to be, whatever that person says and moves their lips and says or their assistant D.A.'s, you know, judge so and so is not going to be happy if uh, she's got to sit through a two week trial on this. And so just take that into account, you know, or whatever. Right. I mean, I think there's certainly always the potential the judge is going to not be happy if you don't really have much of a defense. But unless this is a really straightforward case, uh, I don't I a lot of judges I don't think are going to begrudge uh, somebody of challenging the evidence in a case like this. I agree. And, and you know, and there are def- there are defenses here. We're just assuming that that he's uh, he's guilty. And and based on what I've heard, it's it's, you know, a case that seems to favor the prosecution. But there's always a defense in these things. And, you know, there, there it wasn't willful. There was some possible reliance on some accountant somewhere. I mean, who knows what the defense will be? But, you know, m- my guess is it's a case that could theoretically be tried. Well, and let's talk about willfulness, because that is a component of tax cases. It's a very heightened, it's a heightened state of mind requirement. 
Uh, and I don't think it's well understood. Can you explain to us what that means in this context? Well, it means different things in different contexts. But in this context, it, it, it essentially uh, means that the person was, well, first of all, it's inten- it means it has to be intentional and you have to be doing it with intent to defraud. But you have to have a general, <clears throat> a general understanding of what the tax law required, what you were supposed to do. And then you have to consciously decide to do something different. Um, that, that's essentially it. I didn't, I wasn't reading from the judge's charge, but that's essentially what it, what it requires. It, it's, it can be, it can, it's one of the trickier things I'd say about a tax case is having to, to prove willfulness. I, um, I, you know, we, one thing that is, com, has confused, you know, some of our, um, some of our listeners is why you would charge an organization versus individuals in the first place. Can you explain you know, what the rationale is for charging an organization? Well, the, the most basic um, piece is that, you know, companies with their, their collective action can be more dangerous to society than mere individuals. They have, they can marshal more resources. They have, uh, you know, disparate operations in different parts of the country or of the world, and they can really do um, a lot of harm. And so just like we hold companies liable in the civil context, right, people sue companies all the time, the, the same general idea of being held responsible for the acts of your agents or employees grew up in the criminal context as well. Uh, and so the, the basic principle is that companies are not supposed to be treated more harshly because of their artificial nature, but they're not supposed to be given any more lenient treatment either. Uh, so because of some of these collateral consequences that you talked about so eloquently a few minutes ago, there is a, a detailed policy, both federally and in the Manhattan DA's office, to consider when is it the, the right thing, you know, the just thing to charge a corporation. But the, but the charging of a corporation, the, the consideration of charging a corporation ought to happen in every case where the corporation has potential liability. Anytime when the crime is committed for the for the benefit of the company, at least in part, and within the scope of the authority of the people that are doing it, um, it, it should at least be considered. doesn't mean you do it every time, but it should be considered. One question that uh, Mary has is why are we looking at, why are they looking at charging the entity and the CFO versus charging the CEO or other senior executives? Obviously, based on what we know, what, what would, what, what would, how can you help her understand why they might do that? Well, the easiest way to understand it is that you can charge the company based on the fact that the CFO committed a crime, but you can't charge you know, the CFO or the CEO or anyone else just based on the fact that the company committed a crime. So here they'd be charging the company uh, because other people acting on behalf of the company did things that constitute criminal acts. Most likely here it's Weisselberg. But if Trump or one of the other executives or the Trump kids is going to be charged with a crime, that is individual. That decision is individual to the person. So unless you have the evidence to charge the person, charging stage is probable cause, but really you want to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a case like this to make sure you can prove it at trial. Um, You have to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt as to each individual person. Yeah, it's exactly right. Often, you know, it's it's easier with someone who's a CFO, um, w- you know, when you're looking at financial statements, uh, you know, in that kind of a case. Here, though, this is conduct relating specifically to the CFO, as I understand it. And 
benefits that were provided to him. So really, unless somebody else was part of that effort in some way or, you know, part of the, let's say, conspired to ensure that this wasn't reported, which I wouldn't understand. I don't know how anyone else would be. Um, you know, it would only be the CFO that would be involved here. Does that, does that make sense? Well, yes, largely. But, you know, in this case, it's a little weird because the CFO is doing it on behalf of the company. He's also a recipient and doing it on behalf of himself. So remember, I said it only has to be in part for the benefit of the company. Um, you know, my own supposition is that it's unlikely that Alan Weisselberg would have given himself a, a tax-free fringe benefit without permission from someone else or the knowledge of someone else. But that's not enough for criminal charges, um, as, as you well know. So, uh, so, so I don't think this is just personal to Weisselberg. I think the company is very much complicit in this. As to who in the company, uh, we don't know at this point. But presumably, they're continuing to investigate that. Yeah. Now, one very uh, extensive amount of questions. We've got a lot of questions from listeners. Marilyn uh, Wall asked a lot of others about why uh, why do they get warnings that they're going to be indicted? They, they, they find this to be very concerning, problematic. They, they're like, you know, I wouldn't get this benefit, et cetera. Can you explain that? I mean, this is also something that was commonly done in many cases uh, in, on the federal side, in my experience. Can you explain why we might do that? It's commonly done. Everybody who's going to be charged with uh, tax fraud or tax evasion based on not paying taxes on or not declaring taxable fringe benefits is going to be given notice. They're going to know well before that they're being investigated, either because they're being given notice specifically or because they're going to figure it out because agents are asking questions or they subpoenaed bank accounts or whatever. So it's absolutely routine. It would be the rare, rare tax fraud investigation where a white collar defendant would not have notice of the uh, of the investigation and that's the way that's the way it should be because the average tax fraud defendant is you know not going anywhere i mean is is somebody who's not going to flee or anything like that you know they're they're engaging with the government they're arguing in most cases this should really be civil this is really about my audit it shouldn't be a criminal case uh so it, you know sometimes yes of course there are these kind of you know, huge offshore tax haven cases where the person's very much a flight risk, and there you want to be a little more careful. But it's the it's the general rule that in cases like this you would you would get notice. Yeah, one thing that happens a lot in in whenever in cases like this is people compare apples and oranges in the sense that they'll say, "Look, well, you know, there so and so was you know charged with shoplifting, and they didn't get notice, they didn't get this and that." And and the reality is whether it's shoplifting or bank robbery. Um, when people are engaged in a crime of that nature, uh, they usually don't have legal representation in advance. Uh, it's not essentially an investigate, you know, an investigation that's initiated by the government years later and so forth. In this context, would just to give some, you know, to make sure everyone understands the difference here, you know, the government, as you point out, Dan, is issuing subpoenas sometimes to the council on the other side that represent the Trump organization asking for documents and records, they've had conversations with them. And so there, you know, they know that the, that the corporation is going to be not, you know, is obviously in this case, the corporation is not going anywhere. Weisselsenberg's not going anywhere. And it, essentially this allows the government to hear from the defense, what the, um, what the uh, defenses are, what the, you know, what issues they have in their case, 
uh, before they make a decision so that this way they can make a better decision. If anything, you know, the government should should be thoughtful about doing this in more cases rather than less because they think it results in better prosecutorial decisions. Totally agree. And, I, and I'll, I'll add, you know, it's th- this apples and oranges point about the shoplifter is exactly right. I mean, the, 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 as I said, we just went through a Manhattan DA race and the amount of nonsense that was being tossed around about those kind of comparisons was enough to make your head explode. The, you know, for, people would, would talk about shoplifters as though, you know, they're going to prison for several years. And then Alan Weisselberg here is going to go off scot-free for, you know, evading all the, all these taxes when the reality is, at least in Manhattan of 2021, you know, every single shoplifting case gets diverted. So, which means that it's not going to even, you're not going to have to go to court after you're initially uh, caught for the shoplifting. You're not going to be sent to a holding cell. You're literally going to be given um, a, a ticket uh, to come to court, but only if you don't complete whatever uh, whatever program or community service you're, you're given. And then most people will never go to court, even if it's not their first arrest. So, you know, shoplifting and, and most minor crimes, people should know in 2021, in enlightened cities like New York, and I think your city of Chicago is, is the same, uh, are treated quite leniently. People may disagree that they should be treated that leniently, but they are. So those comparisons are really are apples and oranges. Yeah. In Chicago, there's a movement of people who are on the other side of it saying that we treat certain types of offenses, whether they're certain simple drug offenses or other types of offenses, not seriously enough that we are, uh, you know, it's uh, it's essentially we're too light on crime or whatever. And that's I'm not taking a side. That's not an unreasonable position. I'm just saying that right. it gets mischaracterized a lot as, as oh, you know, oh, you, if you do something petty, you're going to go to state prison when you're just not. Well, that's exactly right. No, then that's my point. I mean, I think the the point is that if if anything, at least in our city, it's swung in the other direction. Um, you know, in terms of how you know where the debate has gone, and I'm not taking a side either. Um, you know, one one uh, four letter word that gets thrown around a lot, and in this case, you this is one uh, you were one of the people throwing it around at one point was is Rico. Okay, a four letter word that is all over Twitter all the time. Any case involving Trump, it's all, you know, Rico, Rico, Rico. So I guess my question to you is, uh, does Rico have anything to do with this upcoming indictment? That's It's a question from one of our listeners. Uh, short answer is uh, no, not, not, not from what I've heard. And I'll also say that I've thrown it around in response to questions. Um, and, and, and Rico is not a word that we use in state court. I've done a lot of Rico cases in federal court as a, prosecutor and also as a civil defense lawyer. Um, but in, in state court, it's called OCA, Organized Crime Control Act or Enterprise Corruption. And, um, and I have been asked a lot of questions about it, and, and I've talked a lot about it. it it's it's a, a powerful statute in some ways. It wouldn't apply to this sort of minor kind of, not minor, but you know, niche crime that, that we're talking about here, these tax-free fringe benefits. It, it really doesn't, nothing we've talked about suggest the existence of a criminal enterprise is doing multiple kinds of racketeering acts and all the other requirements that I won't get, won't get into right now. So this, this, these charges are not going to be state racketeering charges, but that doesn't mean that other charges down the road won't be. Yeah. And I just want to make a a couple of points there. So first of all, I'm, um, I'm not suggesting, and I don't think you are Dan, that this, that this, this is not a potentially serious crime. We don't know exactly the details yet, 
Uh, but obviously, everyone should pay their taxes. What you're doing is you're kind of putting it in the context of all the types of crimes that are charged by the Manhattan DA in these types of cases, and you're trying to ballpark it for people to give them context. And so obviously, we think this is potentially a serious offense. We don't want anyone to commit crimes. Um, but uh, it's not necessarily everything that uh, everyone has been dreaming up of what could be the case here. Is that fair to say? I think it's definitely not from what from what I've heard and what the reporting says. It's definitely not. It's important, as you said, I don't want to be paying uh, the taxes on other people's fringe benefits. And certainly not, you know, the Trump organization doesn't seem exactly fair. Uh, but it's in the scheme of things, it's not one of the most serious felonies that, that exists. Yeah, exa- exactly right. So, you know, a lot of folks um, have you know, are asking about why we don't see a Trump under indictment. What, you know, the the former president or member of his family, uh, that of course is, I think what is driving a lot of interest in this case. Uh, can you help people understand that or give them some context for people who don't, who aren't is who aren't lawyers and are having trouble understanding why this doesn't involve Trump himself or his family? Well, First, I, the, I don't see anything about this that lets Trump off the hook in terms of the ongoing investigation. So just because he's not going to get charged this week doesn't mean that they're not still looking at potential criminal acts by him. Uh, but the, it goes back to what I said before, you know, crime and, and, and punishment is individual. You, you have to have the evidence against a particular person. And when you're talking about accounting issues, it's really hard to get the boss unless you have people like the CFO uh, who are telling you what the boss knew. And I don't know what Trump's exact title is today or was five years ago at the Trump organization, but let's call him the chairman. Uh, I'm sure he was CEO at some point or, or, or whatever, but you're not going to get that person without either communicate evidence of communications and he doesn't use email or witnesses who talk about the exact things that he was told and things that he knew. And the best witness for that, by all accounts, is Alan Weisselberg. There may be others. I don't know. And there may be counterparties who may be useful witnesses against someone like Trump. And uh, I, I can guarantee you that the DA is running down all these possibilities. But they tried to get Weisselberg to cooperate, and he wouldn't. So if they're going to get Trump, they're going to need other evidence. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're not prejudging whether or not that's going to happen. Uh, And frankly, one other thing, of course, that I should put out there is that the Manhattan DA is not the only entity investigating Trump. There are other entities out there investigating him for different offenses in different places. Um, But uh, as to this case, you know, this tells us where they're at now. And I think to me, it gives them uh, gives me some sort of clue that uh, the way I look at it uh, uh, is that they they feel that they need to may you know change things up a little bit change the landscape a little bit in order to get the charges they want in other words if they had all the evidence in the world to bring all the ultimate charges they'd like to bring or that they think that they could ever bring they wouldn't need to take this intermediate step but it seems to me that whether it's to get Weisselberg to flip or for some other reason they feel the need to take this step earlier correct yeah you know it is what it is that's where they're at I really appreciate you giving us some context, Dan. It has been enormously helpful for me. It's transformed my understanding of this case. And I think for our listeners, it really does that because we're hearing this is a big week. I mean, there are people out there calling this, quote, indictment week. 
coming up and this and that. And, and really, uh, it's, it, it, you know, it may be just one step or one drip in more instead of more to come. So thank you very much. My pleasure, Renato. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 